0: Okay, let's go ahead. Good morning, everyone. Again, once again, as always, always meaning it, thanks for being here. Thanks for being uh, faithful to the teaching of the Word of God. This morning we are continuing and will complete the discussion on the garments of the high priest. And again, what is so critically important about What the high priest wears is that in every piece of his clothing the Holy Spirit is showing us something specific about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. So each one of these has to do with something of our great high priest, everything typifying him but being demonstrated in shadow in the high priest of Israel and then being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. So we continue this morning. We're going to talk about the last two pieces, the breastplate and the turban. So let's pray. Father, Father, thank you so much. Father, when we read the pages of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Genesis, Father, it is amazing, breathtaking, what you have done to bring back your original intention because of Adam's fall. Father, the cost to you and the blessing to us. Father, as we walk through life, we struggle with the difficulties of what's going on in our lives personally, in families, in the church, in the country, in the world. and Father, we find it difficult or hard, as many people say. But, Father, we have no idea what difficulty is, what a challenge is, what suffering is, until we look into your face until we look and hear Your Word in the Scriptures, until we see a man walking the roads of life, condescending to the lowest place from heaven to earth, submitting himself even to the authorities of this world, and being rejected and tried trumped up, lied about, beaten, crucified, buried. All of this so that your glory may once again shine in and through humanity. And we see that in the resurrection. Father, thank you for giving us glimpses of this, pictures of this in the Old Testament. Father, cause us to revere the Old Testament with as much passion as we revere the New. Father, for we don't look at your word as being better on one side or the other. But your word is your word, one word. And we look at all of it as a continuity, as all of it being good and gracious. Revealing and redemptive. So, Father, continue to minister to us, to teach us, to give us understanding, give us knowledge, wisdom, discernment. Father, using this instruction, using other instructions in this church. So, Father, we can really be the people that you've saved us to be. As Jesus said to Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Father, so that when the world sees us, they see you. They know know who you are and how you are as they watch us individually and corporately, as they see us publicly and privately, as they see us under great duress. Father, as they see us in great victory, proclaim yourself through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are concluding the garments of the priesthood, and we're going to be talking this morning about the breastplate. You see the breastplate right here on the chest of the high priest. Now, you remember, the high priest wore over his robe what is called the ephod. We talked about that last week. We talked about, didn't we talk about the sash? I, I can't remember sometime. Where, let me look at it and make sure. Yes, we talked about the sash. Okay, the sash. Authority and and anointing of God there. And so you see the breastplate right in the middle over his chest. Let's talk about that this morning. And then we'll go to the turban or the cap or the crown. The breastplate was a cloth pouch that had been attached to the front of the ephod. And it was a cloth pouch that, when folded, it was square. And so it was attached to the front of the ephod, and on the outside of this pouch were connected three rows, I'm sorry, four rows of three stones, each stone having inscribed on it one of the names of the tribes of of Israel. So all of the tribes of Israel were inscribed and carried, if you would, by the high priest as emblematic of this breastplate. Now you remember, we've said on several occasions, the great purpose of the high priest was the work of representation. Do you remember me saying that? The work of representation. It is an important and critical word that we understand when we look at the word of God and when we look at the gospel and when we look at what God has done and what he's doing. Representation. There are two major words that have to come together for us to understand the gospel. The words representation and substitution. Now, we haven't gotten yet to the word substitution, but we're still in the word representation. So, in the high priest is represented the entire nation of Israel, or if you would, in the high priest is represented all the people of God. This man in himself, in Israel's high priest figuratively, and in Jesus literally, in Israel's high priest figuratively, but in Jesus literally, we are carried before the presence of God. We are carried first to the cross, to the brazen labor, you remember, for the destruction of the issue of sin as to its penalty and as to its guilt. We were there. Our sins were being paid for in the brazen altar by the high priest as he slaughtered the animal. And then our sins were paid for at the great brazen altar, the cross, when our great high priest goes to the cross to be crucified, carrying not only our sins, but us ourselves. How do we know that? Where is my scripture to say we ourselves were carried in Christ, we were in Christ when he goes to the cross? What, what scripture is that? Does everybody remember? We've quoted it two or three times. How can we say that we were in Christ? What is Paul saying? Galatians two twenty. I was in Christ. Does it say I was in Christ? Hmm. I have been crucified with Christ. So what does that mean? I was in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and who gave himself for me. That's representation. So the breastplate is a symbol, once again, of this representation. Just as on the, remember when the ephod is connected at the uh, shoulders. Remember we talked about the shoulder last week. And on one side is an onyx stone set in gold. On the other shoulder is an onyx stone set in gold. And on each of these onyx stones are the six names of the sons of Israel on each one. And so we are carried, if you would, on the strong shoulders of our high priest. Today the breastplate signifies a similar kind of a thing. You see, this signifies that God <clears throat> that God carries his people in his heart of love. This signifies that we, being God's people, are close to the heart of God. How many of you remember this scripture in John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, we are being carried by this high priest, typifying in Israel's high priest, being literally carried out in the high priest's function and ministry of Jesus. We are close to the heart of God. We are in, if you would, the love of God when Jesus ministers. <clears throat> so let's notice that those who are so represented in the priesthood, those who are represented in this priesthood are the sons of Israel. They're sons. It says the sons of Israel. And so what does this say? This says this. They are members of the family of God. That the high priest is not carrying every single person who ever lived. He's carrying a specific people before God. And this people is a people whom God has ordained before the foundation of the world. Where do I get that? Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Remember that. Before the foundation of the world, we have been predestined. Remember that. We have been predestined. We have been chosen. Now, some people may not like that. Well, I don't like the idea that God has chosen. Well, if you don't like the idea, then you don't like the whole understanding of your salvation because God has to choose us and call us and awaken us and enliven us and deal with all the effects of the fall and raise us up. We were dead. Raise us up so that we can have eternal life. If it weren't for God's preemptive calling and choosing of us, none of us ever would have been saved ever, ever, ever. Why? Because people outside of Christ simply cannot call upon him and be saved in their own abilities. I was listening to a radio program that was coming through the coffee company the other day, and the man on the particular religious station, and don't figure out which one. It's a serious station. I have no idea which one it was. It was serious radio. But he said this, that God has given a little bit of faith to everybody. And so everybody has the opportunity to call on Jesus. Now, where does he get that? God has given a little bit of faith to everybody. Well, he, he gets, gets that from where? Romans 12.3. But is that what Romans 12.3 says? Paul speaking to the church says this for God has given to everyone among you. Who, Shane? The church. God has given to everyone among you a measure of, or a little bit of, or the necess- or the basic amount of, or what you need of, what? Faith. So we are God's family. We are carried emblematically in this breastplate and literally in the heart of Christ when he goes to the cross. So in the same way, when our high priest offered himself our sins, and, and get this. When we look or think about or read about the crucifixion of Jesus, we should not do so in a way that disconnects us from that event. When we look or think about or read about or hear about the crucifixion of Jesus, we have to immediately identify that I was there spiritually, but literally in the mind and in the decree of God, I was there. So that when Jesus said, it is finished, the full price has been paid, my sins at that moment were fully paid for. They weren't fully paid for when you got saved in a literal or reborn again in a literal sense in your history, but they were paid for when? When Jesus died on the cross. You see, Jesus did not die to make salvation available to people. He died to save people. Do you see that difference? If I make something available to you, you may or may not take it. Here, here's some stuff that's available. Ah, oh, no, thank you. No, th- I want that. No, thank you. Jesus didn't ma- die to make a, uh, sin, uh, sal- salvation available to anybody. He died to save his people. Can you say amen? amen. You see the difference here. You're going to hear sometime preaching, well, Jesus died to make salvation available. That's not the truth. It doesn't say that. It says Jesus saves his people. We are saved in the cross of Christ. Why? Because we were carried in his breastplate, if you would, all the way to the cross, all the way to the grave, all the way out of the grave into eternity to be with him. Now let's talk about, again, the second part, the turban, the top hat or the cap. The high priest wore a turban on his head with a gold plate And the front of which would said, holy or holiness unto the Lord. Holy to the Lord. Now remember, again, what does this cap represent? It represents something of Christ. And not only does this represent something of Christ, but it also represents something of us. Why? Because we were in Christ. So make sure we don't see it. Just Jesus and not us. It is Jesus and us in him. The high priest's turban symbolized his mind, his thinking, his thoughts. It symbolized all that governed his affections and desires. And all of his affections and desires were beat. beat. (whistles) Okay, now I have it were to be set on the Lord, all of his affections, all of his thoughts, all of his desires were to be what? Holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. Everything he wanted to do, everything he didn't want to do, everything about his mind and his thoughts, his emotions and his feelings were to be holy to the Lord. The priest was to have the mind of the Lord. To have the thoughts of God. To think the same thoughts, to have the same desires of God so that the glory of God's holiness might be expressed in him. So that's what that cap was representing. It was saying, and remember the cap of salvation or the helmet of salvation in Ephesians 6. It was saying that everything about this man in his head, if you would, and I think most of us would say that what we do and who we are and whatever is basically contained with the activities within our head. And it's all to be holy to, the God, holy to the Lord. It's all to be set aside for the specific and only use for God. It has to do with God. Anything about my mind, my thoughts, my desires, my decisions are not to be made on what I want, what I like, what I enjoy, where I want to go, how I want to live, where I want to live, what I want to do. That's To me, it means that all of those kinds of decisions are collected and given into the hands of God. And in effect, to say this, Lord, whatever your decision in these many, 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 many areas of our lives, I want to hear from you, and that's what I will do. I want to hear from you. So if you are thinking to go over there, move over there, you get that job, make that decision, whatever, what should we do as believers? Because I hear constantly, well, I, I, I wanted to do this and I, it's okay. It's, it's not a, a problem. I, you know, and so fine. We start going in those directions. What's the problem in that? The, the problem is we haven't consulted God. What does that mean, that every decision I make has to be consulting God? Well, what it means is that the predisposition of our minds must be toward the Lord's will. And yes, it may be that these decisions, minuscule, major decisions, whatever, should be made within the context of, Father, I need to hear from you. Not, Lord, I hope you're in this. I hope you're in this. I'm, I'm asking you to kind of come on along with me. That's backward. We are to walk with God. He's not to be following behind us trying to catch up. And so let's be a people who make decisions based on what the Holy Spirit is telling us rather than what we think we can do, what we want to do, what we enjoy doing, and especially what the society says we can do. Because the society will say, oh, this is okay, that's okay. It's all right to go there. It's not a problem to do that. Well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know other than the obvious. The problem is we need to be a consistently dependent and obedient people. Otherwise, we're not functioning wholly unto the Lord. H-O-L-Y and W-H. Remember, holy completely. The turban also should remind us that its position on top of the head. Was associated with authority. Authority. Remember in Genesis 3.15, you remember that prophecy. God is leveling the curses because of the sin of Adam. And when we come to Genesis 3.15, says, he says, he, meaning the seed of the woman, shall bruise your, talking to Satan, head. Satan shall strike you on the heel. He's going to hurt you. You're going to be damaged but you are going to bruise him as to his head. Your work is going to result in the authority of Satan to be broken over my people. So the ministry of our high priest was one that destroyed Satan's authority over us. Remember what 1 John 1.8, the second part of the verse says. Remember 1 John 1.8, everybody remembers that, the second part of that verse. For the Son of God has appeared for this purpose. What? For well, the Son of God has appeared for this purpose. What, what, what purpose? That he might what? That he might what? Destroy the works of the devil. That's a verse you need to remember. 1 John eight, the first part of it, yeah, but the second part especially. Why did Jesus come? Well, among other things, he came to destroy the works of the devil. And that work of the devil, among other things, was his authority over all humanity. until Jesus comes to break that authority and free his people and transfer them. Remember in Colossians 1.13, from what? The domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. Remember, we have been transferred. You see, this, this authority breaking, we see as an example of this in 1 Samuel 17. When a young man comes forth to face and fight a giant and this giant at least in some of the old King James is described in three sets of sixes you'll just have to go see that and so you can see 666 what is that that means the ascendancy and the superiority of humanity as controlled by Satan 666, six, six. and so, what? I don't remember, that. I'm not being cute, you have to listen to the tape. I don't, what did I just say? What was, what was 666 before? The descriptions of this giant is in three sets of six, you'll have to look at it. The sphere, the side, etc. You'll, you'll see it. Now, here's what happens. Remember, this man, this giant is confronting the hosts of Israel. Isn't this what we see in life? Where humanity, where Satan has so pumped up this world that it thinks that it is preeminent over the things of God. And so often to the church, this is a giant, and we see it in the wrong context rather than seeing it in the spiritual context of a defeated giant. And we quake and cower over the world and over the issues of the world and the people of the world and the finances of the world and the whatevers of the world. Some of us, I shouldn't say us, but some folks in the church are absolutely distraught if a certain lady becomes president. <laughs> or they're upset if a certain man who's. Hair blows in the breeze funny. Becomes president. Ha, ha, ha. Our God is greater than all this. And so here's what happens. And David put his hand in his bag. Remember Goliath had come against and taunted the men of Israel. This is exactly what Satan does. Read the taunts. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it. And by the way, I didn't even put about David running toward Goliath. Jesus sets his face like flint toward Jerusalem. Jesus, if you would, runs toward the cross. He runs toward the, uh, the fray. And he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank deep into its forehead. Remember the rock? Remember the rock? Who is the rock of ages? And Goliath fell on his face to the ground. You notice it says on his face. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a slinger, with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Aren't you glad about the sword that is in Ephesians 1, I'm sorry, 6 what? 16, isn't it? The shield and the sword, what is called What? the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And there was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took out his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. You see, Satan meant the cross to be a sword that would destroy Christ. And in Jesus' death, Jesus took the sword that Satan intended with which Satan intended to destroy the Son of God, he took that sword, he turned around, and he cut Satan's head of authority off. He cut it off. It's finished. It's done. So the turban on the high priest was also a picture of royal authority, not only just of authority, but royal authority in particular, that anticipated the crown of our great priest who would wear that crown. Listen to what Revelation nineteen eleven says. And I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and he who sat upon it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, remember the righteous robes of the priest, he judges and he makes war. His eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. On his head. This is the royal Son of God the royal king, coming forth from the halls of heaven to make war against Satan and his gang. But, but, before Jesus could wear this royal crown of the king of kings, he first had to wear the crown of the curse of sin, of sin's authority over fallen humanity. In order for him to have the crown of righteousness, of king of kings. He had to wear the crown of the curse. You Remember that the Lord had cursed the ground in Genesis 3.18. Remember He said this to Adam, thorns and thistles. This is what you're going to get out of the ground because of your sin, thorns and thistles. So what happens? In Matthew, Mark 15, 17 we see this, that Jesus is wearing a crown of thorns. On Jesus' head is placed a crown of thorns. Now these men who did this, these Romans who intertwined this crown of thorns had no idea what they were doing. They were fulfilling prophecy. They were fulfilling the picture of God saying, I will place all the weight and the result of the curse of sin on the head of the seed of the woman. And he will wear this authority of the curse to the cross so that when in death, the Bible says, and Jesus bowed his head. When in death, when he bows his head, the full price of sin's curse The full authority of the curse, the results of sin, are bowed and put to death in the bowing of the head of the Son of Man. The curse, its authority over us is completed. Now, its effect over us is still happening. Anybody still having aches and pains? Anybody still having diseases and sicknesses? Anybody still having all the results of what is happening? Yes. That won't be fulfilled until the coming of the Savior with his crown of King of kings and Lord of lords. But the authority over sin's curse over us has been destroyed when Jesus wearing that crown of the curse of sin and he bows his head, emblemifying what? It's over. It's finished. I have paid the full price. So Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit in John 19:30, After saying what? It is finished. As a result, Jesus is now a risen, ruling, and returning high priest who is today wearing and will ever wear his own crown of righteousness. So the turban has to do with that. That's what, at least partly, what you see in the turban. Now let's talk about the last aspect of this high priest, and then next week we'll get into the ministry of the high priest. The consecration of the high priest. That's a setting aside and making this high priest the person for God's anointing and purpose. The consecration of the high priest is a very elaborate and evolved ceremony. And if you read it in in Exodus and you read it in Leviticus, you're going to see this is an evol- involved ceremony, taking seven days, and then on the eighth day, you know. So we're not going to go into all of those details. In which set this consecration set into him the high priest into his office? It was necessary that he first be consecrated in order to become the high priest, typifying again the consecration of Christ as our high priest. Just as the high priest of Israel had to be consecrated, so also Jesus had to be consecrated. What are you talking about? Not as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man. Not as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man. As Jesus, the man. He had to be consecrated in the same general way as the high priest of Israel. So what we see again in the consecration ceremony and activity of the high priest of Israel back in the Old Testament, that we see fulfilled in the consecration of Jesus. The consecration of the high priest involved three basic steps. The call, the family, and the ritual of the consecration. I'm just putting it this way. This is just how I'm laying it out. You may see it differently. First of all, the call. The first qualification of a priest is that he had to be called to become a priest. Now this is important because when we get into the ministry of Jesus we're going to see from Hebrews about this call. The first First and most important aspect of a priest is that he is not called by himself. He is called by God. Remember in Exodus 28 when it begins the whole process and the activity and the ritual of consecration. The Lord says this to Moses. Have Aaron your brother brought to you from among the Israelites. Call out from all the nation one man. With his sons Nabob, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. So they may serve me as priests. So one man will come forth as the high priest. And again, you see, well, I won't get, I'm jumping ahead. To be qualified as a priest, a man had to be called by God into his service. God makes a decision. God decides who will serve him. And this determination is not based on the merits of the person or of any circumstance or even the need but upon the will of God himself. Aaron wasn't chosen to be the high priest because he was the best guy in Israel. In fact, when God called Aaron to be the high priest, what did God already know would happen? He would know that Aaron submitted to and actually led in the construction or the uh, molding of this golden calf. Aaron would lead that under the pressure of the people. So God knew, how can God call a man like Aaron when this is what he's going to do. Aren't you glad that God doesn't look at our behavior when he calls us? Aren't you glad he doesn't count up the good deeds and the bad deeds and kind of weigh us out? And so, what is this based on? It's based on God's will. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, even as He chose us in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. <clears throat> Listen to this passage from Isaiah 42.6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. 43.1 of Isaiah. But now thus saith the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So the first qualification of a priest is God's call. Now, when did God decide to do this? I just read it. When? Before the foundation of the world. So those who would serve as priests unto God have been predetermined determined before the world was created by the unilateral sovereign call of God that originates in Him according to His eternal purpose. When were we called to be children of God? Well, on April whatever in 1964, I became a child of God. Well, in one sense, is that true? Yes, it is in the natural sense to my experience. But is that eternally and essentially true? When did I become a child of God? When? I have never become a child of God. I have always been a child of God. I have always been a child of God. When did I get into the mind and heart of God? I and you, we have been in the mind and heart and purpose of God As long as God is, Perry. You see, God didn't wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to save, I'm going to make some people, I'm going to save them and whatever, and I'm going to have a family. This was never a decision that occurred at a particular time. It is part of who God is in himself, in his character, in his own makeup. Isn't that, can you get it? So when did I become a child of God? I have always been a child of God. When did it begin? It has always been. Aren't you glad of that? John 1:12. Hmm? John 1.12. John That's right. You know, now you're going to have to go back and read John 1.12. I never heard of it. Well, to I know. I, yeah. So <laughs> we have been in the purpose and in the decision of God forever before the foundation of the world. You see, there was a decree at a particular moment perhaps, but this was a decree according to the purpose and will of God that has always been a part of God's purpose. What about the family? What family? Well, remember the family of Aaron and his sons. Even though Israel had 12 tribes, only the men of the tribe of Levi were separated and consecrated by the Lord to be his priests, to minister in the things of the tabernacle and for the work of of the high priests, only one particular family out of the, all the men of Levi were chosen all the way down to Aaron and his sons. Those are the ones who would be the high priest. So you'll see this very important when we talk about Jesus being called to be God's high priest. From all the people of the earth, one man is chosen from among all the others. And that man will be like Aaron. All of these families, only Aaron is chosen. And he will be the high priest. Once again, you see, we see God's specificity. Only those of a certain family were called as priests to God. What does 1 Peter nine say? We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So why are we here again? Why are you here? See, what I'm trying to do is disabuse you of the power of And of the greatness of our thinking, we got into Christ because of something we have done and who we are. It's all, it it, it permeates our, our skin. You know what I mean? Why are we here, Lester? Upon the unilateral sovereign decree of God to which we said yes. And why did we, well, I've done something. Well, certainly we have. I did say yes. How many of you said yes to Jesus? We did say yes. But who gets the glory for that yes? Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Wow. That's pretty good, man. How do you like that? Then what does Paul say next? Say it again. But that, that faith is not of yourself, but it's a gift of, God, lest any of us should boast. And so even the faith for me to say yes to Christ is the work of God that He planted in my heart when I was born again, remember Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, and when that work of the Holy Spirit occurred in me, removing the stony heart and a fleshly heart given to me, I said yes. Why? Because it was the Holy Spirit's empowerment of my decision to say yes to faith, by faith to Christ. So what does that mean? That anybody who is born again will be born again. All whom Jesus saves will be saved. He will lose none of them. I think I read that somewhere. I lose nothing. All whom the Father has given me, right, I will lose what? None of these. Why? Because you see, the work is in and of God through Christ. And our work of obedience is our cooperation by the motivating empowerment of the Holy Spirit who gives us the faith and then moves us to say yes. It is my decision. I have actually made the decision to say yes. It's your decision. But it's a decision that was informed and moved on by the Holy Spirit rather than the natural man. Hey, I, I think I want that. I think I'll go that way. The Bible pounds this over and over again so that on that day God Himself in Christ will receive all of the glory. And His glory will be seen in these people who have cooperated with God's decision to be saved under the motivating empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now, what about the ritual? The ritual for the consecration of the priest followed very specific and strict uh, instructions. You can read these in Exodus 29, and you can see the uh, activity of them in Leviticus 8. The consecration began with a strict instruction. This is what you are to do to consecrate them. That means Aaron and his sons. So they may serve me as priests. So there was only one way to become a priest of God. Only one way. Remember what Matthew 7 says. Jesus says this. Enter by the narrow gate. For narrow is the gate and wide is the way that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. I'm sorry, wide is the way and easy is the way that leads to destruction but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So many are called but few are chosen. Well what does that mean? Many are called but few are chosen. The gospel trumpet sounds from heaven. We see this in Titus 2:11. For the grace of God has appeared instructing. Everybody knows and God calls from heaven repent. What does that mean? Jesus has been displayed as my son. Well, what does that mean? That means in the hearts of those whom God has decided before the foundation of the world, this will be their call to receive Christ. This is the gospel to which we have responded. The world hears the call. They either hear about Jesus and the through the church and the gospel, or they know about God through their own innate beings, remember, in Romans 1, 19 and 20, but they don't respond, but they hear. They've been, the word has gone out, but the ones who have been chosen are the ones that God has chosen. You see, this is a tough doctrine, amen? I mean, how many of you think this is easy to swallow? Because of our own flesh, because of our own inability to understand the ramifications of the glory of God. And I have to wrestle with this a whole lot like you do. But I don't chuck it and I don't try to twist and turn it. I just go with what God says about himself and thank him for that. So the consecration of Aaron as high priest in Exodus 29 is outlined as follows. And does, I think you had the outline there, don't you? I'm just going to outline it like that rather than going into all the details. So let me close like this this morning. The high priest was cleansed, was clothed, and was anointed. I don't think that's in your notes. It may not be. The high priest was cleansed, he was clothed, and he was anointed. Why? For the greatest and most critical service of all. And we're going to see this as we begin to get into the ministry of the high priest next week. So in order to get this, I've asked you already to read Leviticus 16. But I failed to mention to you that you also need to read the Passover. in where is that? Exodus what? Where would that be? Exodus 12. Read the Passover and read Leviticus. And we'll see the ministry of the high priest as combining two festivals in one. See you next week.